Welcome to the Tally Room Podcast. I'm Ben Rowie. In today's episode, we'll be discussing how the choice of electoral system influences the party system and what sort of results are produced at elections. In particular, the role of the size of a parliamentary assembly and the average number of members elected in each district. My guest today is Matthew Shugart. Professor Shugart is a Distinguished Professor Emeritus in Political Science at the University of California, Davis, and is a leading expert in comparative electoral systems. He has co-authored numerous books, including the 2017 book, Votes from Seats. That is the book that I read that I wanted to talk to Matthew about today. Hello, Matthew. Hello. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for coming on. There are a wide variety of electoral systems used in democratic countries around the world. Some are majoritarian, such as the the first-past-the-post systems we see used in the US and the UK, and the system we use to elect the House of Representatives in Australia. Others use proportional voting systems. Anyone who has paid attention to Australia's voting systems knows that results can look quite different depending on the number of people elected in each electorate. There are parties that win seats in the New South Wales Upper House when it elects 21 members in a single electorate that couldn't win seats to the Senate when it elects just six per state. But when I read Votes from Seats, uh, the book co-authored by my guest today, I was fascinated to discover how the number of members elected in each electorate has such a clear effect on the shape of a country's party system in combination with the total number of members elected in the Assembly. Matthew, what do we mean by party system? Okay, so party system is one of those terms that has quite a few different definitions in the political science literature. So I'll talk mainly about what I mean when I say party system in the context of thinking about how electoral systems shape a country's democracy. I look at it as how many parties are there in the system, but not just a raw count of parties, because of course, a party with one seat's not nearly as important as a party that has half the seats. But the basic concept of party system is is simply how many parties are in the system and what are their relative sizes? How big are the biggest parties and how many little parties do you have? And so we need a way to summarize that. And there are various ways that have been proposed, but the most common one is the effective number of parties. It's an index. Um, It's a way to summarize the information I was just describing, the, the, the number of parties and their relative sizes with a single number. And so what the effective number really is, is a size weighted count. Like If you have three parties that are equal size, that's fundamentally different than if you have three parties where one of them has, say, three quarters of the seats and the other two split that remaining quarter. And so we want to weight it by the size. And and the way we do that is it's a pretty simple, elegant mathematical solution is we square their shares. So when you square a share, so like, in other words, if you have if a party has half the seats, we enter it as 0.5, but not 0.5, rather 0.5 times 0.5. And when you do that, the smaller shares become come smaller yet, and so they contribute less to the index. Once we've all got all these squares, the square of each share, we sum them up, and we take the reciprocal, a one divided by that sum. And so that's a just a fancy mathematical way of arriving at an index value. And it has a very nice property, which is if you had three parties and they were exactly the same size, each one had a third of the, say, a third of the seats, your effective number would be 3.0. But if one of them gets a little bit bigger than the other, you know, like, so you still have three, but one has 
40% of the seats and the other one has 20 and the rest, the other one has the, the remainder, then that number is going to go down. We still have three parties, but they're on equal size. And so the, the effective number will go down. If one of them splits, the effective number will go up. You now have four parties, but your effective number will be something between three and four because they're with one of them splitting there. You have, you now have four parties, but they're not all the same size party. You can use this measure for both the number of seats in an assembly, but also the proportion of the votes as well, right? You can use it as electoral parties and parliamentary parties. Correct. Yes. So we can calculate it on the seat shares of the parties, and we, and we call that either the effective number of seat winning parties or the effective number of parliamentary parties, or you can do it on the vote shares of all the parties, and we call that either the effective number of vote earning parties or the some people would say the effective number of electoral parties. When I was preparing for this uh, podcast, I actually went through and calculated EMP both for the vote share and the seat share for federal politics in Australia for the last two decades or so. So I might add that chart uh, to this podcast post when it goes up, but the number for the House of Representatives in Australia over the last two decades has usually hovered just a little bit above two, and then it jumped to 2.4 in 2022, which if you know in the context of our last election, we had this big block of technically independence, but all very ideologically similar independence. Um, they went from being three of them to being nine. And the Greens, who had had one seat for quite a while, won four seats instead. And those two factors appear to have increased the ENP, so it's now 2.4. So it's still closer to two than three, but it is, it is showing that the way the lower house works is becoming less of a clean two-party system and a bit a bit messier, a bit more complicated. Yeah, yeah, that's a very good demonstration of how the, the index summarizes what's happened. It's still, it suggests that there are still a couple of parties that are more important than the rest, more important than the size, just just bigger than the rest, but that you now have more smaller parties present in the House than you had previously. And so, yeah, that uh, that summarizes it, I think, pretty clearly. And that those smaller parties are more significant now than they were before. Than they were in the past, exactly. The non-major party share went from six seats to 16. So you would expect that to have an impact on that. You brought up the independence. That's a perennial issue that we face in calculating the effective number of parties is, you know, like, what's a party? Right. So we talked, we started this off talking about what's a party system, but then what's a party? Sometimes that's really straightforward. A party is, there's no, there's no question, right? But if you have a group of independents, one solution is every independent is just counted as though they were a single person party. And another possibility is if those independents really do have some sort of coherent similarity to one another, then we treat them as a party. And there's really no one right answer to that question. You have to be sensitive to the context that you're applying it to. Well, it's funny. Um, we have, not counting the Greens, there's 12 other crossbenchers. 10 of them are technically independents and two are party members, but sole members of a party. But of those 12, 10 of them, uh, nine and arguably 10 of them are very ideologically similar and the other two are very different. So you could, I think in the end, I might've just grouped them together or I might've just separated out the two technical party members in how I did it. But you could, in theory, argue that those nine or 10 you treat as a party um, and the other two get treated separately. The other issue we have, which I've also come across when calculating like the Gallagher index for proportionality is we have the coalition who- yes 
it's gotten more complicated because there used to just be two parties, but there's now actually four parties in the coalition because there's some state-based, in some states they amalgamated and formed a state party in the same way that you kind of have the CSU in Bavaria kind of thing, the Liberal National Party in Queensland, but they don't run against each other. And yeah. if they win a majority in parliament, there's no coalition negotiation. They just form a government the next day. There's no there's no question that they're in. they're kind of in a permanent coalition. And so... It does sometimes make more sense to treat them as if they're a single party, and I think that's what I did for this um, analysis, and you would get a much higher number if you treated the different parts of the coalition separately. Yeah, that's a very important point. You mentioned Germany. There are quite a few political systems where you have parties that cooperate with one another. They call themselves distinct parties, but how formalized and how regularized is the cooperation if it's really high, like what you just described, it's probably sensible to count them as a party together as a party but in other settings it might you might want to disaggregate them and and there again there's no clear right or wrong answer it's a question of like what's your theory of a party oh yeah and that is what i can came to with the coalition which is depending on context sometimes you have to treat them as one party or two parties or four parties and uh it depends on whether you're looking at them as in the electoral system or as how they operate in parliament it gets very messy well right even the german case is is tricky because the the, the Christian Democratic Union and the Christian Social Union, the so-called union parties, they, they actually do negotiate coalitions. When, they, when they're going into government, they negotiate as separate parties, but they never go sep- their separate ways. They're always in government or else out of government. So what, are they a party? Or are they two parties? The Liberal National Coalition, they do negotiate a coalition agreement, but it's secret. Nobody knows what's in it. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And there's no question that they will form government with each other. But there is a process where they go through and they work it out and they share ministries in a proportional number. And so there is the mechanism of coalition, but it's there's no question. And with very rare exceptions, they don't run against each other. Anyway, that's the effective number of parties. So that is a useful metric we use a lot for this. But that's kind of when we say party system, we're talking about the complexity, the number, the diversity of those parties in the party system and effective number of parties is kind of a simplified measure that you can use sort of mathematically to compare different electoral systems. Right. What the effective number does not tell you is other things you might care about. When when you think of party system, you might care about what's the left-right balance in the system or how many different dimensions are there besides left-right? What do the parties disagree on? How polarized are they? Are they? How far apart they are on issues? That's not in the effective number. For that, you need other index values. So that's both the strength and the weakness of the index. I mean, the effective number of parties is very good at exactly what it's meant to do. Yeah, you know, with the caveats we said about borderline cases where you'd have to make a decision about what's a party and what's a group of parties, what's a coalition, what's a set of independents, etc. It's very good at once once you have determine what the relevant units are. It's very good at summarizing the relative, what we like to often say, concentration versus fragmentation of the system. It's concentrated if one party is significantly bigger than the others. It's fragmented if there are a lot of them and no one is really particularly large. But it's not going to tell you these other things that you might be interested in about a party system. There's these two inputs, two key metrics that kind of describe an electoral system's shape that um, input into the effective number of parties. We've got assembly size and district magnitude. Do you want to go through those and why those are both important? Yeah, sure. So 
let's just say that what we're doing then is we're entering a, in a, a context in which we're trying to explain things, right? The, the effective number of parties is just a descriptive index. It just a country has an N of 2.5 or it has an N of 6.7 or whatever it is. Uh, but why? Is there anything, when we look across countries, is there anything that explains why that one, one case was 2.5 and the other is 6.7? And of course, the electoral system, the rules under which the election is run are a key reason or, or key factor, not the only factor, but a key factor shaping whether you have something consolidated around a few parties or fragmented across many. And so the so-called seat product model, which was developed by my, my mentor in graduate school, um, and then he and I have worked on it together and developing it further and testing it further. The seat product model posits that we can explain the effective number of parties in a given country or given election based on two principal inputs. Another from the electoral system, two principal components of the electoral system, the district magnitude and the assembly size. So assembly size we can take first because that's right, it's the it's it, it that's the most straightforward one. How many seats do you have in your your assembly? Where assembly just really means the the first chamber or the sole chamber of the legislature. So the House of Representatives in the in a case like Australia or the equivalence bodies in other countries, which are sometimes called chamber of deputies or whatever they might be called. Um, district magnitude then is, well, most of the time the assembly is, the members are elected in some number of districts, not usually one. Sometimes every member is elected in their own unique district, in, w in which case the district magnitude is one. And obviously that's the case in the Australian House of Representatives and also in the U.S. House of Representatives, but districts can vary in how many members they elect, how many members are elected from one delimited constituency, and that's what we mean by district magnitude. So it turns out when you multiply these two together, assembly size times district magnitude, you have something that we call the seat product, and from that you can pretty reliably predict some basic outcomes like the effective number of seat winning parties, the size of the largest party and various other what we might call outputs of the electoral process. In the Australian context, we have a bit of experience with tweaking with district magnitude having an effect on our results and who gets elected. I mean, we have a Senate where we elect six per election per state. But uh, every now and then we elect 12 per election per state um, when, when the two halves of the Senate all up for election at the same time. And you notice very different results, like a lot more parties get elected. There's a lot more diversity in who gets elected. Um, the state of Tasmania uh, used to elect seven members per district. And as a very deliberate move to try and eliminate the Greens from the parliament, they'd had two hung parliaments in three terms. In 1998, the... Um, major parties got together and reduced the size of the assembly from seven times five to five times five. And they're actually about to reverse that at the next election. They've already passed the legislation. Whenever the next Tasmanian election happened, the moment that happens, they're going to go back to the old 35 seat model. But what you did see was the Tasmanian Greens were not wiped out, but they saw their numbers severely cut and they had to kind of rebuild off that lower base. Um, and I mean, I've also... Uh, you can look at my blog, but I've done a bit of analysis on local councils in my home city of Sydney, where there is a bit of variety of district magnitude under PR, and you do see 
quite different results when you elect three member wards versus five or 15 member ward, which my home local council that I grew up in elects 15 members with no wards. And so you do see some of those effects happening quite close to home. But assembly size is one that I hadn't thought much about. People often talk about Duverger's law as this kind of historical um, piece of research in, in this field that sort of suggested that first-past-the-post single-member districts would uh, like tend to produce two-party systems, but a lot of the first-past-the-post systems we see around the world don't produce two-party systems. And I think the fa- when you realise that assembly size has, has a role in that, it all makes sense. You know, you look at places like India or the UK that have very large parliamentary assemblies. And so even though the district magnitude is one, they still produce a bit more diversity than Duverger's law would suggest. That's exactly right. A basic problem with the so-called law of of Maurice Duverger, a a French sociologist and political scientist who first uh, articulated this in the 1950s, he wasn't really the first one to point this out, but he was the first one to, to say this is almost a law. He didn't say it was a law, but he said this of all the propositions in this book, this is the one that comes closest to being a true sociological law. And so people started calling it Duverger's law. The fundamental problem with Duverger's law is what, what you just said a moment ago, is that it basically assumes that it doesn't matter how many total districts there are to elect a given legislative assembly. And so it will imply that the electoral system of the United Kingdom is the same as that of Jamaica. Well, UK has 10 times as many seats, and therefore, since all of them have district magnitude one in both these countries, first past the post, therefore, it has more than 10 times as many districts. And you know, holding everything else constant, the more districts you have, the more likelihood you have that some party is able to form a plurality of the, the electorate in some smaller, more compact district than it would if the district sprawled across a much greater territory. Again, that's holding constant everything else. And so the seat product model allows you to recognize that as the total number of seats is either magnitude or the total number of seats increases. But for the purposes of talking about first past the post and Duverger's law, we're keeping constant the magnitude, right? We're holding that at one. As the assembly size increases, you have more and more opportunities for other parties to win. And of course, if you look at the UK Classically, it's considered a two-party system because you have Labour and the Conservatives, but for decades, you've had a persistent third party in the Liberals and now the Liberal Democrats, and you've had, of course, the Scottish Nationals can win, and the Greens have a seat now, and so on. Whereas you look at a case like Jamaica or other of these smaller Caribbean countries, they have very small assemblies. They're they're smaller countries, but they have very small assemblies, and they tend to have exactly two parties. And usually pretty unbalanced. Usually one of those parties wins a pretty big majority. I mean, one thing I think there probably is a bit more evidence for is that at the electorate level, when you have a single member electorate, and I think this is also true under the Australian system with preferential voting, most of the time there's only two candidates who are serious in that district. Um, And in fact, the, the rare occasions when there are three serious candidates in a district in Australia they get those elections get quite weird and they get a lot of attention and they don't tend to stay in that state for very long. They usually are like that for one election and things things change at the next one. But, you know, having two serious parties contending for a single member electorate in one district doesn't mean that it's going to be the same parties everywhere, right? And the, 
the but like if you do have some small i mean i'm i'm doing some analysis today for the northern territory legislative assembly because they've they redrew their electoral boundaries yesterday they have 25 districts single member it just gives a lot less opportunity for diversity than the 151 we have at a federal level i want to qualify what you said a little bit which is that if we look at either canada or the uk we actually find that a large percentage of the districts are not two-party dominated. I mean, they, they have significant, they, they won't have three parties very often that are equal size, but you have like the modal district in a given election might be something like the winning party gets 40% and the next party's on 30 something. And then there are other parties picking up the rest. And that's true in Canada as well. There's a, there's a common misunderstanding of the Canadian system that I've even seen in published literature and political science that says that well, Canada's multi-party in spite of Duverger's law, but it still works at the district level because you have a different two parties here than you have over here in another province. That's not true. That's actually em- empirically false about Canada. You don't have a series of regional two-party systems. The NDP, the, the, the main third party nationwide in most elections, is competitive. I, don't, I shouldn't say competitive like it could win. It's present and it's getting significant votes almost everywhere. Obviously, some places more than others, some places it wins, some places it's trivial, but it's it's present. And so it's not really accurate to look at Canadian elections and say, well, it's because they're federal, it's because they've got this French-speaking minority, it's, got, it's because they're big, diverse country that they have just different two-party systems in different places. They actually have multi-party politics almost everywhere. And that's totally consistent with the seat product model. In fact, Canada's effective number of seat-winning parties, parliamentary parties, on average over many decades, is almost precisely what we would expect if we take the the seat product, which is just its assembly size, because again, district magnitude of one. It's currently 338, if I remember my number correctly. That should give you an effective number. I may not have this right off the top of my head, but somewhere in the 2.7 range, which is pretty much where they are. Whereas Australia has 150, that should give you around two. It'd give you a little more than two. Australia may have what you described as mostly two-party competition at the district level, in part because it has a relatively small assembly compared to something like Canada or the UK. The UK, by the way, should have a more fragmented system. It should have, right? The seat product model would predict a little bit more fragmentation than they have. But like the 2010 elections should be more typical when nobody got a majority. But in fact, something about British politics transcends that and slightly complicates it. Um, And of course, that's the thing. A model predicts what it should be, but real politics is more than just what a model says. It's The point is the model works well on average for the vast majority of countries around the world that use democratic electoral systems of some kind. I was more thinking of in terms of the parties that can win in an area rather than that other parties get a substantial share of the vote. Because of course, under our our voting system, other parties get quite a substantial part of the vote. You know, the Labor Party federally won a majority with 33% of the vote. But I guess the Duverger's law theory is not just about who can win, but it, it actually predicts that the the fact that only two people can win should dwindle the other party's votes down until or the, until they don't exist. And that definitely doesn't happen, certainly doesn't happen here. 
And yeah, as you're saying, it doesn't happen in places like Canada or the UK because it is true here. Like there, there aren't many places where you would think more than two people have a chance of winning, but even still, there's often 20, 30, 40% of the vote being cast for other candidates. It's quite regular. And the number of seats where a candidate is winning over 50% of the primary vote has dramatically fallen over the last few decades, even while the number of parties dominating the legislature has still stayed quite low. That's an important observation, and that's certainly the case in Canada as as well. It's largely the case in the UK. So the the Duvergerian perspective faces a real challenge with something like that because, as you said, it it people should, according to the what Duverger said, there was a mechanical effect, which is just the process of turning votes into seats, which results in some votes being wasted. Like you know, the third party vote is, has no chance of helping you win a seat, so that should disappear over time, right? People should psychologically, he says there's also a psychological effect, should stop voting for those parties. But empirically, that's not what we see. And it seems to be that voters are thinking of other things than the outcome in their district. They're thinking of like, is this a party that you know, expresses my values? Or maybe they think, is this a party that's viable somewhere else? Even if it won't win here, will it be viable in parliament? I want to show I support it. And so voters aren't that narrowly focused on their district as the Duvergerian perspective would lead us to believe. We have the experience in Australia where we have preferential voting for our lower house. The story that often goes out is you can vote for the Greens if you want. You can give a second preference to Labor and it's a safe vote, you know, just as much as you could just vote for Labor. It has the same effect. And I think sometimes there's an expectation that if we had first past the post, the vast majority of those minor party voters, the Greens voters in seats where the Greens can't win places, people like that, would switch and vote for Labor. And I think some of them would, but I think that evidence from other countries suggests people are not that strategic. They're not that calculating. Some people are, but there would still be a substantial number of people who would probably continue to express a vote, even if there was some kind of, you know, we in most cases, we don't have that spoiler effect you have in the first past the post that should in that theory, the, that disproven theory of dwindling the third party vote, we have something that kind of protects that third party vote from that happening. But it suggests that even if we switch to that system, the results would probably be less representative of what people actually believe, but not all voters would switch their votes to be much more calculating and strategic. I think that's correct. I mean, the the again, it, it's a little bit different because Australia's lower house is smaller than Canada's and a lot smaller than Britain's. But I think the experience still suggests that, yes, a lot of voters would continue voting for the Greens if that's the kind of politics they want. And uh, maybe in very close races, you would see, you know, if they expect it to be really tight, then then you might see more strategic voting. That does happen. But the problem is that voters don't often have really good information about how close the contest is in their own district. Most of the time, I don't know if this is different in Australia, but most of the time there's not really extensive polling of individual district contests. And so, you know, you don't have the ability to cast a strategic or tactical vote really depends on your having pretty good information about how close is it in my district? Is like, is my is my vote really going to matter? And voters may be more likely to think of that at the national level or or in federal systems, their state or provincial level 
than to think about their own district because they just don't really have a clear idea. I mean, even if district lines are drawn in a pretty fair way, as, as I think they are in Australia, certainly relative to most U.S. states, they're still pretty arbitrary. You know, it's not like it's a clear community where you can say, well, I know, I know how what the views of this community are, so therefore I know how my district looks compared to the polling at the federal level. That's that's just a really hard thing to ask of voters. When we get seat polls in Australia, they're not very good. They don't do as well as the national polls, and we don't get many, that many of them. I was reading the journal article where you also explained this theory because you've explained the seat product model in a number of places. And you had an interesting example there of, I think it was uh, Portugal and a much smaller country. Oh, possibly St. Kitts, Nevis. I, for, I, yes. I know the piece you're talking about. I think that's what it is. Yeah. You compared Portugal and St. Kitts and Nevis. And you said, at yeah. first, I thought it was an interesting example of how the seat product model doesn't compare everything, but it isolates the effect of assembly size and district magnitude and then allows you to go, what else is going on that might deviate this country from what you would otherwise expect its party system to look like. And the example you gave was Portugal, which has both a larger assembly and a more proportional assembly compared to St. Kitts and Nevis, which is a small country, small assembly, first first past the post, I believe, and thus has a much smaller seat product. And so actually when you when you compare it, Portugal has a surprisingly low effective number of parties and St. Kitts and Nevis has a surprisingly large effective number of parties for the particular electoral systems they have. I thought that was an interesting example of how this can be then be used as a, this isn't the full story, it's kind of a, a kickoff point to then go deeper into maybe more interesting questions about variation in political systems. Yeah, right. That's really, I think, where it is a useful tool is that, I mean, first of all, the seat product model we show in the book, Votes from Seats, that you mentioned at the start of the podcast, we show that it explains about 60% of the variance. I mean, so in statistical terms, in other words, it's an R squared of about 60%, which is pretty good for two variables. The the, the assembly size, it's one variable because they're multiplied together. But I mean, it's two inputs to that variable, the assembly size and the average district magnitude of the system. But that's still at least 40% to be explained by politics. And so it allows us to say, well, okay, here we look at a set of elections and they're about what the seat product model predicts. Great. That's not very interesting. I mean, hooray for the seat product. But now the, the interesting ones are the ones that are higher or lower than predicted. And then we have to go to the politics of the country and say, well, what is it about St. Kitts and Nevis? And well, the name, I guess, has a sort of a clue, right? Because St. Kitts and, and Nevis are separate islands in a federation and they actually have rather different politics. They have their own parties. So the the, the number of parties in St. Kitts and Nevis, the country, is larger than we would expect because, so like the C product model doesn't know that they don't have like national parties for St. Kitts and Nevis. There's no St. Kitts and Nevis Labor Party. There's a Nevis Labor Party. And I, mean, I, don't, I don't remember what the parties are called, but I mean, they're, they're just different parties. So it's a case that is more like the kind of conventional wisdom that I said is wrong about Canada. The districts in one part of the country really are these two parties and the districts in another part are these other two parties. And of course, then in Portugal, well, why is the effective number somewhat lower than expected? I guess I don't know the answer to that, but, you know, we would turn to a Portuguese expert and say, you know, like maybe the Portuguese expert hasn't thought about that question because it's just, they know the Portuguese party system, but they maybe hadn't thought about the seat product and it allows 
the the electoral system specialist and the the country expert to have an interesting conversation and learn more about how the electoral system works in that context. Yeah, there's something interesting about this way of analyzing electoral systems, which is when you're very focused on your home country and analyzing that country, you can be an expert in that country, but being aware of the electoral system around you that shapes you, that maybe it's been the same electoral system your entire life and you've never really experienced another. It's a little bit like a fish being aware of water around it, you know, that you suddenly realize that all these things that seem like immutable laws of your political system, they're created and they're not inevitable. And they actually, you can then go, what are they doing to affect how elections work here? Related to that, a particularly interesting thing for me about the seed product model also is you can take a country like, say, Israel or the Netherlands, which have these, you know, enormously fragmented party systems and people just say, oh, well, you know, that's just that's just the Dutch or that's just the Israelis. I mean, they just ha- they just like to have a lot of parties. But when you take the seed product model, you find they should have a lot of parties because they use a single nationwide district. So all 120 in Israel, 150 in the Netherlands, all the seats are allocated in one very big district. So they should have a lot of parties. And right, if you don't have that comparative context and some sort of model to help you navigate it, you lose sight of those things and you focus on the country specifics and kind of lose sight of things in the institutions, the rules that might be shaping this. I wanted to ask you a little bit about the Australian context. And we have a system here. I know a lot of the electoral systems that were the focus of the analysis in your book were, I think you termed them simple electoral systems. So first past the post, list PR, people cast a single vote and uh, that produces the result. In Australia, it's very unusual, the idea that you would just mark a single box. People number boxes, they mark multiple preferences, and sometimes people are not represented by the person they cast their first vote for, but their vote does help elect someone. And the question of whether that person is represented in parliament gets a little bit more complicated. So I know that our electoral system wouldn't have been part of the sample being used for that, although I do see a lot of echoes of it in our voting system. How much do you think this applies to a country like Australia? We have the preferential voting, but we also have a federation, which means we have these state and federal party systems that are not independent of each other. And we have uh, a system as well where we have two different electoral systems being kind of used simultaneously. Really, really good questions. And so, yes, the book uh, is mostly concerned with simple systems. And as you said, that in, indeed the uh, the preferential system, the, uh, the, you know, the, the ranking of choices puts the system of in Australia, both both houses of the federal parliament and state parliaments, and puts it outside of the category of simple because that's a complex feature. On the other hand, what we do observe is that, uh, as, I, as I think I mentioned a bit earlier, that Australia does have roughly the party system it should have if it used first past the post, you know, if, if it already used first past the post, that's why, you know, I say, what would happen if they switched? Well, probably not a lot because the effective number of parties in the House of Representatives is quite close to what you would expect um, with a simple system, given a seat product of 150. So it turns out that lots of systems that are not simple can still be modeled as if they were. And in the book, we go through some ways with other more complex systems like New Zealand's MMP and other systems can also be incorporated, with, which we won't go into here, but by bringing in one other parameter. 
So in the Australian context, I feel pretty confident in saying that the C product model does work there. I've never really given a close look to the Senate, but I think you said that the Senate was still pretty close to what you would expect given its size and its magnitude. So it seems like it kind of works. It produces an EMP for seat share that was actually been going up. It's around three now, which sort of fits because on the one hand, it's got six member districts, but it's also a smaller chamber. Like it's 40 senators elected at each election, total of 76 in the Senate. So I'm not really sure if I use 40 or 76, but it's a little bit more effective number of parties than you get in the House. And that kind of fits with the fact that it's more proportional, but it's also a bit smaller. And by the way, I would use the 40 actually, because aside from double dissolution, obviously that's what's elected at any one time. So that's the electoral system in the sense that that's how many seats are available. And that's what what the model cares about is like what seats are available in this election. And what about federalism? Where Australia has a federal system, six states and two territories that have their own party systems. Mostly they look pretty similar to federal politics, but they're not quite the same. How do those interact with each other? It's an interesting question because we would expect that federalism would have a strong impact on party systems just because it creates another arena that wouldn't exist if you didn't, weren't federal, right? You would have, you'd have only the national politics and you wouldn't have the state or provincial arena. But the fact that both Australia and Canada have party systems that look like they should look according to their seat products, their assembly size times their district magnitude, suggests that federalism isn't that important a feature, or rather it doesn't necessarily complicate the overall picture. I mentioned the case of St. Kitts and Nevis, so apparently there it does. And I mean, it certainly does in India where you have all these state-based parties. So I guess my answer to that would be that federalism matters in all sorts of contextual ways for how the parties are organized, but we can't say in any systematic way that it makes the seat product not reliable or requires us to put that variable in. There doesn't seem to be much evidence for that when we look across countries Like I said, the C product model explains about 60% of the variance in the effective number of parties. That other 40% does not seem to be in any systematic way shaped by whether a country is federal or not. But that's not to say that any given country's politics, the fact that they're federal doesn't make a difference. Of course it does. It just doesn't necessarily show up in the effective number of parties when you look across countries and a large pool of countries, some of which are federal and some of which are not doesn't seem to matter. One thing I do wonder about is you're talking about the impact of federalism on the national federal party system, but we also have parties that get elected at a state level and don't show up at the federal level, and you might not count them in the national party system. And so in that sense of them being different party systems, being the New South Wales party system versus the Australian party system, I think we do see a little bit of a difference there. There's a number of parties in Australia that have gotten people elected in state politics and have never broken through federally. We have a Shooters Party that at one point had five seats in the New South Wales Parliament, three in the lower and two in the upper. And um, the Greens famously kind of broke through in Tasmania, which has a PR system long before they broke through federally. So I think there might be something there. And actually, if I ever find the time to do a master's or a PhD, I am very interested in local councils in Sydney where the party system of the local council does not resemble 
how people vote in that area at a federal and a state level, where the council has PR, multi-member districts and that, and new parties pop up and just exist in one area. And I'm I'm really interested in studying that question of like where do they come from and what do they do and how much of that is predictable and that sort of stuff as well. Um, so you do see a little bit of that. It's often hard to tell because parties often are not formally recognised in local council, but where they do, we get these little local parties that pop up and just exist within the bounds of one or two councils. Of course, that's something that federalism gives you and local politics, which is you know a different variable, but it gives you is other arenas in which people can organise parties. And so that's a way in which levels can matter and allowing additional parties to exist. But yes, I was speaking specifically of the, the national level politics and whether there's any systematic effect of federalism that we see. And it seems like there really isn't. But, the, but again, individual states, individual provinces in Canada, uh, individual city councils in any country could develop their own local party systems because they, they're distinct arenas in which people can contest for seats and contest over policy. I'm amazed that they're not more similar because our media, our people's attention is so focused on the national level, people don't really spend a lot of time thinking about the local and yet they still vote differently. It's very interesting. Uh, I'm kind of amazed that there's not more just a replication of how people vote federally. Unlike the US, right? Where Well, I was about to say. Yeah, strangely. I mean, in the... Yeah, you vote for them all at the same time. Yeah, right. And strangely, in the US, we don't have any phenomenon of state-based parties and we have very little tendency to local parties. In fact, a lot of local elections in the U.S., especially in Western states like California, where I am, they're nonpartisan. I mean, technically, there there may be parties kind of lurking behind that, but they're 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 technically nonpartisan. And so, yeah, that's unusual. And then you have Canada, where some cities have their own party systems, like Vancouver has a very distinctive city party system. Just to take one example, my theory. And I haven't ever looked into this that much about part of the reason for the US is that people vote all on the same day for a lot of elections, not all elections, but a lot of local and state and federal elections are happening simultaneously and people, it's a single process of voting, whereas we very much, in fact, it's illegal. You can't hold a state election on the same day as a federal election. Uh, And on one or two occasions, they've They've come into conflict with each other and the state elections had to be postponed a week to avoid it. Well, in the US, there's been a movement towards putting them all on the same date. It used to be more common for local elections to be on their own cycle. And it still is the case in New York City. Uh, I guess Los Angeles has its own cycle. San Francisco recently shifted from having its own election dates to having them at the same time as state and federal elections. But even these cities that have their own electoral calendars still don't have local parties. And it's mysterious. And I don't really know. I don't have a canned answer for why that is. I wish I did. The US is just uh, doesn't do that. (laughs) It's probably not the first time you've looked at the US and said it just doesn't, it doesn't quite fit the model. (laughs) It's my own country, but I don't get it. (laughs) So that's about it for this episode of the Tally Room podcast. Thank you, Matthew, for joining me. Thank you. 
You can find this podcast on your podcast app of choice. If you like the show, please consider rating or reviewing us on iTunes. You can follow The Tally Room on Mastodon at tallyroom at mastodon.au or like us on Facebook. This podcast is made possible thanks to the generous support of our donors on Patreon. Sign up at patreon.com slash tallyroom. Information about this podcast is available at tallyroom.com.au and you can email questions or feedback to thetallyroom at gmail.com. Thanks to Christopher Rowe for writing the music you hear in this episode. Once again, thanks for listening.